Well, hey, today we're in Mark chapter 13. So grab your Mark scripture journal, your copy of God's Word, or your phone, and turn with me to Mark 13. And uh, we have got our work cut out for us because we're going to cover the entire chapter today. All of Mark 13, it's the Olivet Discourse. We've got 37 verses here, and, um, and it's going to be a challenge for a number of reasons. One is I'm going to cover all 37 verses um, within the time that I've been allotted here. But also, this is one of the most perplexing chapters in the New Testament. It's where Jesus is wrapping up this temple section that we've been in. Uh, just to remind you, Jesus, in the last week of His earthly life here, um, he, he heads into, the, into Jerusalem. Um, and then He's engaging in the temple. We saw that He, he cursed and cleansed the temple. And then we saw Him engage with many of the religious leaders in the temple. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Now we're coming to the end of this temple section. And Jesus is going to explicitly predict the destruction of the temple. But then He's also going to talk about the end of the age. And so what we have here in this chapter is Jesus connecting a couple of historical events, but also looking at the sweep of history and God's plan to bring redemption and salvation. Um, and before we jump in here, I'll just give you a funny little side note. Um, I grew up in the local church um, in the South, and uh, this really has not a ton to do with my sermon, but I feel like you guys would want to know this. Um, I played in a band. Um, I, I played in a band in my church. Um, you, yeah, that's funny. I see some people laughing. They're like, man, you played in a band. It must not have been that good. Um, hey, I played percussion, and then at times I played the keyboard. But the name of our band, it was for our youth group. So we played like on Wednesday nights for a youth group. We called ourselves the Second Coming. Um, and so as I as I was, you know, you know, thinking about this text and preaching on the Second Coming, my mind is going back to my crazy youth days and and this band that I was a part of. Um, but like, why should this matter to us? Why should this topic matter? Well, first of all, like we should be longing for the return of Jesus. But whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, hey, and you may be here today, and you just may be here because a friend brought you, or maybe you're here with family. Um, but I believe that God has put what I'll call an eschatological longing, uh, a longing for eternity in each of our hearts. Like every single one of us knows this world is not the best that it was meant to be. I mean, the very fact that we're talking adoption and orphan care is a picture of brokenness. All of us get that. We know it's not how it's supposed to be. You go pull up your Twitter feed or the news channel, and it's, you're going to see constant pictures of brokenness in the world today. But the good news of the Gospel is this. God sees it all. God cares. And He's committed to bringing redemption and restoration. Can I get an amen? But when is all that going to happen? That's the question. God's committed to it. When is it going 
to come. And so as, as we transition to our passage today, the first few verses here in Mark 13 help set the framework for us understanding this today. So Mark 13, I'll begin in verse 1. The Word of God says this, And as He came out of the temple, one of His disciples said to Him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? These four verses here provide the, the, the interpretive hermeneutical key to helping us rightly understand what's going on in this passage. And the first thing I just want to draw attention to is that it's important that this conversation is happening in the temple and right near the temple. Like, within Judaism, like, the temple was, um, was believed to be the very sanctuary of God, and it would remain until the end of the age. So the fact that Jesus is having a conversation about the destruction of the temple would have been alarming to them. So the disciples are pointing out, look at this beautiful temple, and Jesus says, oh yeah, it's about to be destroyed. And historically, most of you probably know this, but in A.D. 70, that's exactly what happened. Titus, the son of the emperor Vespasian, led the destruction of Jerusalem. It's in these years, A.D. 66 to 70. And so the destruction of the temple is the background for Jesus' teaching here, and particularly His teaching about the end times in his return. And so Jesus says, look, it's about to be destroyed. And so then they leave the temple and they go over um, and he sits down, it says here, on the Mount of Olives and they ask him a question. They actually ask him two questions. Look back at the text. Verse 4. The first question is, when will these things be? This is a question of timing. Hey Jesus, when is it going to be destroyed? The second question, what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? The second question is, how, how can we know when these things, what are the signs that we can look for for when this is going to happen? But in their question, there's an eschatological ring. Let me hit pause here. You may hear me say this term a couple times today. Eschatology is the study of the end times. So when I, like, when I say eschatology, just think last days, end times. There's an eschatological ring in the sense that their question was not just about the destruction of the temple. The disciples are like, hey, if the temple's going to be destroyed, well, like, is this like the end of times? The disciples connect the destruction of the temple with the end of their world. As D.A. Carson notes, in their minds, 
There, this was a single, complex web of events. Additionally, the disciples probably didn't expect a long interval between the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. Now, here's what I want to do for us. At times, when I'm like in the Bible and trying to wrap my head around the biblical story, there's something that's been helpful for me. It's called the six-act drama of Scripture. I'm going to throw it up here for us. I think we got a picture. Yes. Now, this is helpful for me for seeing all of history. And I just want you to help see where we're at and where we're going. And so, you see, number one here, the first act is creation. God created all things. Act two is the fall. God created us to know Him, to be with Him. But because of sin, man is separated from God. And so that takes us to Act 3, which is Israel. The rest of the Old Testament, Genesis to the end of the Old Testament, is about God choosing Israel to be a means by which He can save His people and get them back in His presence. Then we go to Act 4. Act 4 is about Jesus. You'll see up here, there's 4A and 4B. You've got Jesus' life, and then you have Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus is a Jew. He is the promised one from Israel to save God's people. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, which is what, I mean, we're, we're on the very verge here of Jesus' death here in Mark. You see here, Act 5 is the church. And then at the end of the church is Act 6, new creation. And so you can see here, we start with creation and we go to new creation. This is God's plan of redemption and restoration for the world. Now, let's apply that to what's going on right here. Jesus is saying the temple is going to be destroyed. They're going new creation. They're not seeing this big delay or gap between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And so what, what, what's happening here is that Jesus is going to unpack in the rest of Mark 13 and answer their questions. But He's primarily going to focus on their second question and not their first question. Their first question is a question of timing when. He does not answer that. In fact, we're going to see later on, He says, I don't even know. Only the Father knows. He's going to spend the majority of His time talking about the signs. But here's what makes this passage complex. Here are the tensions of this passage. He is going to interweave the near upcoming event of the destruction of Jerusalem, AD 70. He's going to weave that event. That is a, a near event with the far event of the return of Christ. And, and the challenge for us is as we read through this, understanding what of this is referring to the near event and what of this is referring to the far worldwide event event. But we shouldn't be surprised that this is happening. When you read through the Old Testament, you often see the prophets 
that will use a near event, a near event, to foreshadow a future event. I mean, we could see this in the promise to King David. God promises him a son who's going to reign forever. And then you have Solomon, who seems like a, a fulfillment of that promise until like Solomon completely loses the kingdom. And what you see here is that this promise is looking much further beyond Solomon to a coming son of David who was going to reign forever. So in other words, what we're going to see in this passage is that the temple is going to function as a paradigm for the second coming of Jesus. And so, as we see these two events interwoven, um, we're going to get Jesus' answer to their key questions. But here's what I want you to see. And I know I'm taking some time here to explain this, and here's why. It's a really hard chapter. And I want to make sure that I that I don't run past you guys, but I'm bringing you guys along in this journey. Much of maybe your frustration at times with the second coming of Christ is thinking, or thinking and reflecting on all the people who think they've known when Jesus is going to return. And it's this fascination with trying to predict the exact year or the date that He's going to come. But what we see in this passage here is that Jesus is saying, you should not spend so much time worrying about predicting the time as you should focus on be faithful in the present with the time that you do have. And we're going to see Him repeat that over and over and over. It's a call to faithfulness as a disciple of Christ rather than speculation regarding the future. So let's keep reading here and see how Jesus answers their questions. Mark 13, I'm going to pick back up in verse 5. It says, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in My name, saying, I am He. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for My sake to bear witness before them. And the Gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand um, what you were to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for My namesake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee 
to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And a loss for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there He is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. I know that's a lot there. We're going to walk through and unpack it together. The first truth that Jesus challenges disciples with is this. By the Spirit, expect and endure deception, persecution, and tribulation. By the Spirit, expect and endure deception, persecution, and tribulation. I'm going to break down this section here. and So we're going to look at first Mark um, five, uh, 13. We're going to look at verses 6-13. through 13. And then we're going to look at this section 14-18 through 18 on the abomination of desolation. And then we're going to look at 19-23. through 23. Um, So what we see here in 6-13 through 13 here is that for the most part, Jesus is describing the experience of the church following His ascension. Look back here. Many are going to come in My name and they're going to say, I am He. So there's going to be people claiming to be Jesus. You're going to see this. He says you're going to hear wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. Nation against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. Earthquakes, famines, birth pains. The first thing that I want you to see here is that there is going to be deception. The greatest threats to discipleship start with what he says might be internal threats. There are going to be people among you who are going to claim to be false Christ. I mean, think about it. When things get hard, one of the most tempting things to do is to follow somebody who's going to promise you hope. And he says, there will be people who will promise things, but they are not me. Do not be deceived. See that no one leads you astray. So let me just ask you this. How do you help protect yourself from deception? I'll just give you a question to ask. Is this person helping you to know God and are they making much of Jesus? Are they making much of themselves and using Jesus 
to manipulate you to follow something else. Anybody who comes that doesn't make much of Jesus is not from Jesus. And so one of the best things you can do to guard against deception is to know Jesus. It is to spend your life making Him the greatest treasure of your life. You spend time knowing the Word, reading the Word, studying the Word. I, and my mind as I'm hearing, as I'm reading this, I think of Ephesians. where he, In Ephesians 4, he says, so that you'll no longer be children tossed to and fro. You want to grow to maturity. If you stay a babe in Christ, anybody could lead you astray. You, you protect yourself from deception by growing like Jesus and making much of Jesus with your life. So he says, be on guard against deception. The second thing is he warns against tribulation. And we see these tribulations here are going to be on believers and non-believers. Wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines. And then he says, these are but the beginning of the birth pains. I know recently we've had some new children. Some new babies. Can we, can we give it up for the new babies here at Redemption Hill? <clears throat> they may not want to think about the birth pains, but just to use this metaphor here, there will be increasing frequency and duration of these events. For, so for these women that have been into labor, like, you know, they, they, you know the, the, the frequency and then the intensity. He's like, this is just the beginning. This is where we're headed. And what he's describing here is the period of tribulation that's going to extend from Jesus' ascension until His return. Now, as we read through these verses, we see a lot of this in the early church. We go read through the book of Acts and you're going to see this, particularly this next section where we see persecution. When you look at verses 9 through 13 here, again, you hear this repeated, be on your guard. Let me just hit pause here. I want to give you a task this week. Read back through Mark 13, but just underline the commands of Jesus. Like, what are the things He commands? And what you're going to see, you're going to hear words like, be on guard. Don't be deceived. Don't be led, led astray. You're going to hear, be on guard again. Stay awake. Stay alert. Don't be anxious. You're not going to hear, hey, go try to figure out the exact details of my return. It's on, be faithful. And we see that here. But be on your Guard. Verse 9. They're going to deliver you to councils. You're going to be beaten. You're going to stand before governors and kings. But here's what's interesting. These persecutions don't hinder the progress of the kingdom, but they rather provide opportunity for the spread of the kingdom and for witness among the nations. I mean, go read through Acts. And you just start seeing this. They're beaten. They're put in prison. Stephen in Acts 7 is killed. But what happens in Acts 8? 
the church is scattered out of the Jerusalem. That's the whole point. God sovereignly allows persecution so that the church could scatter and take the gospel to the ends of the nations. And so verse 11 here says, or verse 10, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. I want to pause here for a second. Is there any way to throw that graphic back up there? The six-act drama, Mike? The reason the new creation hasn't happened yet is because our task isn't finished. Jesus tells the church, go make disciples of the nations. We see it here. The Gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. If we were to jump to Revelation 7, we're going to see that standing before the throne, there are people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Church, as we think about 10 years, there's a lot to celebrate. One of the challenges for the next 10 years, and as Redemption Hill continues to grow, it's going to be for us to turn inward and to get insular and to think about ourselves. But yet, God's given us a task to go spread the Gospel and make disciples among the nations. And that's got to be the heartbeat of our church. Jesus will not return until this mission and task is complete. Many of you guys know that over the summers, I, I had the opportunity to oversee something called Jensen. It's, and here, it's working with college students. And, and here's what we tell them. We say, here's what we're after. We're after strengthening your identity as an everyday, spirit-led missionary and follower of Jesus. We tell them mission isn't something that starts and stops. It flows from our identity. We are witnesses. And what witnesses do is they witness. And our goal, we tell them, we're trying to see your life reshaped around the mission of God. One of my prayers in the next 10 years at Redemption Hill, even as we think about the return of Jesus, is that as we long for His return, our hearts would long to, for, to see people who are far from God come to know and experience and treasure Jesus Christ. And that we would spend our lives to see that happen. And one of the ways that we challenge our college students in the summer is this. I tell them, I say, the norm today is graduate college, then go find a job, and then when you find a job, you look for a church. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But here's what I challenge them with. And I was helped by this from Curtis Cook at Hope Fellowship Church, who said, wouldn't it be just as biblical to graduate and say, God, where do you want me to go live on mission? And then say, God, will you provide a job there? 
Like, why is it that our lives have to be driven by the work that we do nine to five? And so we're trying to get college students to say mission over marketplace. Like, say, God, I'll go anywhere and do anything for the sake of the gospel, and then just show me, provide me a job there. And I'll know when that's happening at Redemption Hill, when our people are thinking we are living out the mission of God and we're praying, like, if we want to go plant a church somewhere, we've got people saying, I'm going there and I'm going to ask God to provide me a job there. Because we want to see the gospel go there. All right, off my soapbox. But you know what's really cool in this passage? How many of you would be scared to death to go stand before governors, rulers? It's okay. I want to like, I'm I'm probably there. Do you hear the promise? Do, do you hear what Jesus says here? Look at the text. Verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious. You hear that? Do not be anxious, for it is not, or he says, but what, but say whatever's given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. God will not abandon you when you face tribulation, He will empower you. Like, what if daily we lived and we said, I'm, I'm, I'm crushing fear about what I'm going to say to this person because God has promised the Holy Spirit is going to speak through me. What if we lived in such a way that this was what we lived every day? Every day, Spirit-led missionary. Surrender daily to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. I need your help, God, to do this. God never promises that we will be exempt from trials. But He does promise to give us the grace we need to endure it. And so this section ends with these words here in verse 13. And you will be hated by all for My name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Wow. Wow. We all need to hear this. This past week, I did some traveling um, to connect with some of these partner churches that college students come up over the summer. And one of the sad parts of the week is when I go to these churches and I'm saying, hey, tell me about so-and-so who spent a summer with us. And they're telling me they're not walking with Jesus. And in a room this size, the reality is that every single one of us should be aware that, that, that we have to watch our life and our doctrine because that can be us. So we need to hear these words. Those who persevere to the end. He's not saying those who earn their salvation will be saved. It's those who moment by moment daily throw themselves Upon Jesus, He strengthens and carries them to the end. Do you remember the parable of the sower in Mark 4? What was the rocky ground? 
The sower's scattering. He's sowing seeds. Some of it falls on the rocky ground. The rocky ground is this. The ones when they hear the Word immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution comes, it immediately, they fall away. Perseverance is the proof that our profession is real. Let's move on to verse 14. Man, i got to pick up my pace here. I promise you, Jesus is coming back. And we're going to get to that here in the text. 14 through 18. I'm just going to confess. I'm going to do my best here. This is a really hard section. You hear this language, abomination of desolation. It, what it's coming from is this language occurs four times in the book of Daniel. Daniel 8.13, Daniel 9.27, Daniel 11.31, and Daniel 12.11. Most scholars agree that the initial fulfillment of this abomination of desolation refers to the desecration of the temple in 168 B.C. by Antiochus Epiphanes. Let me tell you what he did. He went into the temple. He erected an altar to Zeus. He sacrificed a pig on the altar of burnt offerings and desecrated the temple. That was in 168 B.C. So what's happening here? It says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Now let me just hit pause here. Let's, let's remind ourselves when we have a hard text, we want to look at the context. Where are they sitting? Where's this conversation happening? Remind me. Mount of Olives right across the temple, right? This is the end of the temple. So we've got to keep that in view here. The initial questions by the disciples were about the destruction of the temple, and they see this temple destruction tied in with the end of the age. So, while the initial fulfillment of that abomination of desolation was in 168 B.C., it was only initially fulfilled. There were further fulfillments that were still to come to bring that to completion. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70 is another one of those fulfillments. So, so immediately what's happening here is that there was another fulfillment in the upcoming destruction of the temple by Titus in A.D. 70. And these instructions here that flow from verse 14 through 18 are so specific that this must refer to this first century here and to the disciples. What's he say here? He says... Um, um, those who are in Judea, they're to flee to the mountains. See how Jerusalem specific it is? Let the one who's on the housetop not go down in his house or take anything. Let the ones in the field not turn back. In other words, man, this is going to be so horrific. Don't look back. You need to flee. For women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants, 
man, it would be really hard for them. Pray that it doesn't happen in winter. But, while this, what Jesus is doing here is, is basically saying this upcoming destruction is another fulfillment of this abomination of desolation, there's actually an, even another that Jesus has in mind. The destruction of the temple, again, is just a paradigm for another future destruction and return of Christ that is still to come. If you want to write down a cross-reference to go look at later today, you can go look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which we don't have time to jump in here today. But I want to just hit pause and reflect on this. The destruction of the temple is a shocking reversal. If you were to just reflect on the Old Testament promises, there's all kind of promises made about the restoration of the temple. So like in their mind, the thought that Jesus has come and the temple is going to be destroyed would have, this, was, this would have blown their mind. That was not in their category of thinking. Instead of the Isaiah's glorious hope, You've got the temple facing judgment on par with that of Antiochus Epiphanes. <clears throat> but as you turn to verse 19, it says, For in those days there will be such tribulation has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Some say this is talking about what happened with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Others think, and I tend to lean that way, is that what's happening now is that Jesus is looking beyond AD 70 to a time like AD 70 that's going to happen at the end of the age, there's going to be a great tribulation season. There's going to be an Antichrist who is going to come. Go read 2 Thessalonians 2. And that is going to usher in the end of the age. I know that may raise a lot of questions for you that I just don't have time to unpack today. So go ask your community group leader this week and they can unpack that for you. Tanner Parrish, you'll be great. There you go, man. Um, as you keep reading here, verse 20, it says, and if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. In other words, what's being pictured here is that this age will become so bad that no one would survive if, if God didn't cut short the days. If you were to go back and read in Josephus about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, it was a horrific time of extermination and enslavement and elimination. Jesus is basically saying that's going to happen, but something even much on a grander scale is going to happen toward 
the end of the time. And he continues here. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all these things beforehand. Here's the point. It's that last verse. Be on guard. Pay attention. Keep watch. Faithfulness, not forthtelling, is the key to discipleship. And they'll keep us moving. Let's pick up here in verse 24. Then it says, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. The second truth that Jesus challenges disciples with is this. We should anticipate the glorious return of Jesus. What we see described here, it starts in verse 24, but in those days after the tribulation. So just walking us through. What we looked at a second ago, 6-23, through 23, was basically describing the time between Jesus' ascension and His second coming. We see a lot of that fulfilled in the early church in Acts, but it extends much beyond that with the church taking the Gospel to the ends of the world. It includes that 80-70 temple and destruction of Jerusalem, but extends much further to a great tribulation period toward the end of the time. But at the end of that great tribulation period, then we have finally the second coming of Jesus. This is the consummation of our hope. Jesus will return. He will return physically. He will return bodily. And at this point, He's going to return to condemn evil. He's going to end all suffering and death. And He's going to gather us to Himself. Thank you. This is what you were made for. You were made to know, live, and enjoy the presence of God. The hope of the Gospel is that you can be with God because of Jesus. Jesus is coming back for us not because we're great. It's because God loves us and has sent His Son who's laid down His life. It's because of that He's coming back to us to make us His own. This description here echoes numerous Scriptures. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heavens. Most likely, this is to be taken literally. It's Jesus' return is going to be as clear as you being in a thunderstorm and lightning coming down. Like It's going to be unmistakable. This isn't for just some silo groove that Jesus may return and we may miss it. Like The entire world is going to experience this picture of Jesus coming on the clouds. Echoes Old Testament language of God and the presence of God and the power of God. And so what Jesus is saying is the temple is going to be destroyed and God's presence 
glory and power is now in me. It's a fulfillment of Daniel 7.13 who says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. What does Jesus say here? He calls Himself the Son of Man. This also echoes what we see later in Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, when Jesus comes and He's ushering a new heaven and a new earth, He says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with Him. They will be His people and God Himself will be with Him as their God. There will be no more pain, no more tears, no more suffering. He will do away with all of that. It will be new creation. This is what you long for. And the invitation and offer of this is for everyone who will run and come to Jesus. And so we continue here. As we anticipate His return, He tells this story, the lesson of the fig tree. He says this in verse 28. He says, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. This fig tree here, what would happen is it would start showing leaves which triggered for them the summer is near. Here's what it shows us. It shows us that summer is coming, not when summer is coming. And again, that's the point. Jesus isn't telling them the exact time. He's just giving them signs to which they can know He is coming soon. And as we reflect on this, one of the harder verses is verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What generation is he talking about? And what does these things refer to? Based on how I've interpreted this chapter, I would say this generation refers to Jesus' generation. Those within His lifespan who would see the destruction of the temple. And the, these things is what He's just described there and following. This, these things does not refer to the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus was not saying that within this generation you're going to see the return of the Son of Man. He was just saying these signs they would begin to experience and see. And so what does He mean here by nearness? He says when you see that summer is coming, you will know that He is near. I think it may be helpful for you to think of the time period from Jesus' first coming and second coming as one event. I want you to think of it as like imagining you're looking at a mountain range. And 
from a telescopic view, it's one mountain range. But one of the peaks is the incarnation. And another of the peaks is uh, the, the crucifixion. And another of the peaks is the resurrection. And another of the peaks is the ascension. And another of the peaks is the second coming. It's all one event. And so what Jesus is saying here is that Jesus' return is imminent in the sense that the next thing on the divine calendar is the return of Jesus. Like if I were to throw the six-act drama up there, we live in Act 5, the church. What's next? His return. That's what Jesus is saying. So what's our job? I'll end with the third truth here. Our job is to trust your good, sovereign, and wise Father. Jesus ends here with 32-37 to saying this, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Knowledge of the end exceeds knowability. Jesus says, no one knows. The angels do not know. I, the Son, do not know. Which is amazing, right? Like this statement that Jesus, the Son of Man, can say, I don't even know. Now before I answer that, I just want you to get his point. If the Son of Man doesn't know, should you be worried with figuring out the exact details of the return of Jesus? No! What should you be doing? Be faithful with the revealed will of God. God has revealed a ton of things for us to know. Let's make it our business knowing that and being a part of a fulfilling the Great Commission and we'll leave the exact timing up to God. How do we explain this statement? It only makes sense as we understand the incarnation. Jesus is both fully God and fully man. You realize Jesus actually learned things? It says He grew in stature. He grew in knowledge. He was hungry. He was weary. He died. The God-man. And so what happens here is for a time, He relinquished the free exercise of His divine attributes such as omniscience. Does Jesus know all things? Yes. Jesus is omniscient. He is fully God. And yet, in a very mysterious way, as a human, He can say, I do not know. And I know that's hard for us and wrapping our minds around this because none of us have ever been God and man. 
But the ESV Bible says this, the ESV study Bible, one possibility is that Jesus regularly lived on the basis of his human knowledge, but could at any time call to mind anything from his infinite knowledge. But beyond pressing in there, and I've got to wrap up, Jesus is our example. If the Son of Man says, I'm going to entrust myself to a good sovereign Father, He's telling you, do the same. That's what our business should be. We should trust ourselves into the Father's hand because the Father knows. Even when there's deception, even when there's persecution, even when there's tribulation, God is reigning supreme. His plan has not been thwarted. You can trust Him. As I was coming back from my travels, and I'll wrap up with this, I landed in Boston on Friday. And when I landed in Terminal A, it was such that when I exited the plane, I walked right through a door and went to where the baggage claim would be. I know that's not always the case when you exit, but that was the case. And I walked by, and when this happens every once in a while, I think, man, like you have to go through all of this security like to get on the plane, but somebody could just come like right through this door. Except for what? There's a TSA agent, and his only responsibility is to watch the door. You only go out, and nobody comes in. That's what Jesus is saying. You have one job. You're the doorkeeper. Don't fall asleep. Stay awake. I say to all of you, stay awake. Our job, and the point is this, be on guard and alert so you are not deceived or anxious about the end times, but rather long for the return of Jesus. This is the point of the Olivet Discourse. There's much that God has revealed to us. Let's make it our business. Knowing Him, obeying Him, and making Him known. Let's pray. Father, God, I know there's a lot of details that we just looked at. God, my prayer is that we don't get distracted by the details and miss the invitation to run to Jesus. God, there will be hard times ahead as we wait for Your return. But God, we rest in Your promise that You will sustain us. You will strengthen us by Your Holy Spirit. You will give us the words that we need to say to to testify, to bear witness. God, we thank You. So God, would You help us not to be complacent, not to be apathetic, but to be alert, to be awake. God, would you help us to guard our own souls so that we're not the seed that falls on rocky ground, but that we're the ones who endure to the end. Father, we love you. We long and look to be with you for all of eternity. We long 
for the justice and restoration that you bring with the new heavens and the new earth. And so God, we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. And as we pray that, God, may our hearts beat and be broken for the many who do not know you. God, help us to be faithful witnesses in making much of you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.